Hello, everybody. My name is Aaron Stein, Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. Before we begin, I want to let listeners know that this is the first of two episodes on Russian air power and the Russian military with Rusi senior fellows Justin Bronk and Jack Watling. With that said, let's get on to the Russia contingency with Michael Kaufman. Welcome back to the Russia Contingency, my new podcast at War on the Rocks. I'm Michael Kaufman, the host. Uh, today, I have two good colleagues and friends uh, for a discussion. I've been talking with them for a long time. I've in some ways been exchanging notes with them for quite a long time. And the group here today around the table has something in common. It's not only people who are interested in the Russian military. They're not only folks that I would technically describe as Russian military nerds in terms of their analytical proclivities, but it's also all three people who have done field work in Ukraine and have have gone or seen or experienced some aspect of uh, of the war zone. But the first thing I want to talk about is the recent product they put out on Russian air power and the performance of the VKS, Russian Aerospace Force. We talked about this a while ago. We've been talking about it over the course of the year. Some of the things that maybe we thought, uh, some of the things that we suspected didn't quite know. It's the hardest thing to actually uh, get get a good read on in terms of what's available in open sources. And, you know, the dependence for a good product, Justin and Jack, is that you're going to have to talk about it for a little bit when it comes out, right? So so let me start off uh, with Justin first. Justin, all right, basic question. It feels like the initial Russian aerospace attack and the first couple of days in terms of Russian air power performance, there's a lot more to it than first met the eye. And that uh, Russian air power perhaps may not have been may have been well coordinated with the actual ground invasion, but did attempt to go after Ukrainian integrated air defense, Ukrainian radar sites, fixed sites, and attempted forms of electronic attack. Would you say that that's a fair depiction? And would you add to it based on at least your work and research? Yeah. So I. It's definitely, there was a lot more particularly going on in the first three days of the invasion um, than I could see. I mean, I, you know, I uh, put my foot in it a bit uh, by writing a, a piece saying, you know, what, the mysterious case of the missing Russian Air Force, we don't see it. Um, now, in, in one sense, the the bit that, you know, I and others got right was they had not got the capacity to run what we would expect as a Western air campaign where achieving air superiority through Siad Diad in a, as a large coordinated force is kind of the first thing you do in the outset of a campaign. They tried to do it. And in fact, in many ways, the targeting was pretty synced up between the the strategic um, missile forces in particular. So the, the, the Iskander, the Calibre KH-55, KH-101, KH-555, um, you know, all of these different kind of uh, relatively strategic platforms, coupled with a fixed-wing air campaign and really quite effective electronic attack capabilities from the ground and to a degree from the air, uh, really was coordinated well to to essentially disable and suppress the Ukrainian air defense system very effectively in the first couple of days. And it took them until day three for them to really have have much that was starting to come back on into play on the ground. Um, during that time, you know, the, the, there was a lot of fixed-wing air activity, um, several hundred sorties a day. Um, in some cases, pushing up to 300 kilometers behind the lines and very much going after air defense targets. You know, it was coordinated with the long range strike campaign. And what's more, the fixed wing strikes in particular were concentrating 
uh, on trying to go after air defense targets that would be protecting the routes that they expected the, the air assault formations, for example, Hostomel to take. So relatively well planned, um, given how little time they had to plan. Um, and, you know, in some ways, uh, an indicator of, of what the VKS can do, despite the fact that the overwhelming message from the, the early phase of the war and, and what has sort of dictated it up to now is still they can't do Siad Diad properly. And that has meant that once the Ukrainian ground defenses came back into play, the, the activity we saw in those first three days that was, thank goodness, focused on a target set that their overall targeting process was a little bit slow to keep track of the mobile bits um, wasn't able, wasn't something they were able to do longer term. So here's my take on it. I'm, I'm curious what y'all think. I thought that the first thing that we saw was that they did attempt uh, a strike campaign and they did attempt to suppress uh, Ukrainian air defense to the extent they could in the first couple of days. However, once Ukrainian air defense was able to recover from the shock of the initial invasion, they were able to displace, at least those units that displaced in the night in, in the hours running up to the initial airspace attack, then the Russian Air Force showed that it wasn't very good at battle damage assessment. It wasn't very good at reassessing and trying to find and fix targets. And it couldn't actually prosecute a complex campaign like that. And there, and there are two questions I have. First and foremost, is that a fair assessment? Could we say that they could engage in complexity, but not on large scale? And the second one, and Anastasia Jack, it's hard for me to intellectually reconcile the logic of the Russian campaign with the logic of a Western airspace campaign, because attempting air superiority over Ukraine would have taken months. And I don't think the Russian Air Force was necessarily capable of it, but certainly it wasn't very compatible with the notion that, you know, in five days they conduct regime change in Kiev and in two weeks they'd, they'd sort of be done. I'm curious how you read at least what you interpret to have been the plan of the Russian aerospace forces, what their job was supposed to be in, in, in initial theory that Russia had an invasion that, that went rapidly pear-shaped. Yeah, I mean, this is the big challenge with analyzing the war is that uh, the Russian plan was intended to achieve control over all major administrative centers and critical national infrastructure in 10 days. Uh, and then for there to be a suppression of resistance and counterintelligence campaign that would go through until August, and then you would have annexation. Um, you know, they were supposed to be in position in three days and shift to kind of screening and mopping up uh, what was left of the Ukrainian resistance by day 10. Um, massive amounts of optimism bias, in the, optimism bias in the plan that just compounded at each level. And when you read the Russian orders, the strange thing about them is that there is no contingency. Right, it's it's very detailed, and everything is mapped out, and where everything should go is there. Yeah, but there's no plan B. Right, and so and so, particular. This is particularly a problem for the VKS, I think, because their job was to punch a hole in the defenses to enable the Verdevir to seize the airfields, to enable those initial penetrations, so that the ground forces could get to where they needed to go within the time frame. Um, they did that. Right? There were two waves of aviation that managed to get into Hostomel, uh, despite there being two air defense sites that they had to fly past in order to get there. Those were destroyed. Right, But the ground forces slowed down for lots of reasons. We can get into that. And so as soon as the air defenses started to recover and reorganize, uh, the VKS was then in a very different situation, which was dynamic targeting. And I mm -hmm. think to come to your point about BDA, um, it's not just BDA, it's also their intelligence cycle, right? Like I remember days before the invasion being in Kiev and the presence of 
Russian penetrations in terms of troops and their intelligence service coverage of those areas was extremely high. And so they knew where a lot of the stuff was and they knew where it was when it was moving. That's still the case, by the way, today. The, the Russians are still getting hmm. regular updates on the locations of their targets, um, mainly from humans. Their ability to get that to their air force in a timely manner is non-existent. So, so it's not a collection problem, it's an, an analytical problem. And from a BDA point of view, they basically rely on three things, which is, does the pilot say they dropped and hit the target? Quite partial. Pilots don't make a second pass and check. Can they pick up the next day that there is evidence of damage from their satellites? And their satellites do not have very good electro-optical capability. Uh, and the third one is SIGIN, which they do have very good capabilities, but they analytically are challenged because the Ukrainians just always jump on the net and say, oh no, my equipment's broken. And so it gets chalked up as, yep, killed that. And then next aircraft flies in and is engaged by the system that is not dead. I um, would also add just at a technical level, if we're talking about the Air Force specifically, a huge portion of their arsenal, both missile and uh, air launched, is geared towards hitting fixed targets at range um, because of the, you know, the, the I mean, it's not an overarching doctrine, but the no contact warfare idea of being able to hit concentration points and a trit uh, away from the close fight because they're worried about a fair close fight. Um, and also the fact that, you know, their GBAD was supposed to be their main line of defense against uh, NATO. NATO doesn't really do large scale GBAD. And so, you know, for them, why would they have a highly developed CAD DAD capability or a major ability to go after organic battlefield targets? That's not it wasn't a core part of the doctrine. One important thing there, and again, it comes back to that original campaign plan, is that uh, the Russians bizarrely didn't strike force concentration points. Particularly. That's right. Uh, the Ukrainians were successfully moving two to three echelons a day through their railway system throughout the first month. The forces were not the center of gravity of the Russian campaign. Right. The it's Russian one of those puzzling things because it was genuinely a regime change operation. And therefore, the, uh, the orders to uh, the Western military district, who were mainly commanding the forces that were engaging with the bulk of the Ukrainian armed forces in the Donbass was to fix them. Fixing was the plan in terms of how they were going to be defeated. Um, and therefore, you know, I remember before the war going through with Ukrainian officers and they were deeply concerned about their ability to resupply, about the VKS's impact on logistics and therefore the sustainability of the defense line and the line of contact. They didn't get hit at all, um, which is, again, about planning and force employment not about capability, right? Sure. And to me, force employment is always king. Like you can assess potential based on quantity and quality, but force employment, military strategy, and constant operations at the end of the day, very deterministic of outcomes. So my sense of it is in some respects is that in a lot of ways, the Russian military is very good theory, but organizational adaptation, developing the, the, the structures that you would need to put your theory into practice at scale is one of the observable challenge in employment of the Russian Air Force. A couple of questions I have. The first is, if the Russian ground forces didn't know within 72 to 24 hours exactly what their orders were, how is the Air Force supposed to support them? How is that air-to-ground cooperation going to work and, and integration if the ground force itself didn't know exactly what its orders were in the last couple of days, right up until the run-up to the war? The Air Force sure as heck couldn't have supported them. But the second question is, it seems as though the center of gravity was neither the, the actual Ukrainian military, the echelons of their forces, because it was clearly not a combined arms operation when we look at the initial invasion. 
but also they now have a mission to interdict the flow of any additional support from the West. Or am I wrong on that? Because that would have involved an airspace operation or trying to attain air superiority in other parts of Ukraine. And it looked like the Russian Air Force eschewed that and tried to, to create local air superiority corridors alongside wherever the ground forces were going. I don't know if, I don't know if you have the same view, Jack. Uh, so I'd say firstly, the air forces were subordinated to the military district command posts of the ground forces. Uh, and so as soon as the ground forces got into trouble, a lot of the air campaign was pulled towards trying to help them. And in that sense, any logic of a kind of air power uh, theory of how they were employing their aircraft disappeared. Yep. It was subordinated to ground force interests. On the point about Western aid, uh, I think it's really important to flag that when the Western analytical community came to the conclusion that the Russians were not serious about invading in March, April of 2021. Um, that wasn't the lesson the Russians took from that. What they took from that was, okay, if your logic is you don't think we're serious until all the enablers show up, if you only start reacting at the point where the enablers show up, then you are not going to be able to influence the outcome, right? The right. Russians' confidence in their ability to do this was premised upon the fact that we were waiting for those indicators to show up before we would actually respond. And so this is relevant to the Air Force and interdiction of Western supply because they thought it was all going to be over before that showed up, right? And in many ways, in terms of the impact of Western equipment, they were actually correct. So the propaganda value of Western equipment going into Ukraine was extremely high at the beginning of the war. It didn't really have a substantial material effect on the course of the fighting, Western Fair. supplied arms, until I would say April, um, when the Ukrainians started to run low on their own stockpiles of capability. Um, you know, what blunted the Russians north of Kiev was two brigades of artillery firing all their barrels every day. Yeah, for all the footage of javelins and in-laws at yeah, the end yeah, of the yeah. day, this was an artillery fight. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Western aid after that became critical, and now the West is Ukraine's strategic depth. But the Ukrainian assessment was they would be able to fight for six weeks based on their stockpiles at mm -hmm. maximum, and they were anticipating losing a lot of their stocks to the VKS. Fortunately for the Ukrainians, they managed to disperse a lot of their arsenals just before the initial strikes. Um, and there were two things that saved them. One, the dispersal. Secondly, and this is, does come back to the competence of the Russian forces, I still haven't unpicked why this is the case, but their allocation in terms of volume of munitions against a particular target makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, no, it's completely irrational force employment. I, I, so let's get into this a little bit. It's a rabbit hole, but it's one of my favorite ones. I saw almost two different Russian strike campaigns. At the strategic level, it felt like there was a person who was assigning sort of one, two, three cruise missiles per air base or bridge or something like that, and then taking a long time to do BDA and feed the intelligence back. And they were sort of checking it off like a spreadsheet or a list of some kind, and then realizing that that's grossly insufficient number of weapons to actually service a target. And then coming back to it much later, weeks later, to find out that, oh, this is still functional, that's still operational, and firing again two, three missiles. And then on the other side, when it came to supporting at the tactical operational level of depths, there was somebody firing Toshka U ballistic missiles, SRBMs, at, you know, any artillery piece that they could see. That is, there was somebody with a completely opposite approach to employing precision-guided weapons at the tactical level who were basically firing everything they could find in their arsenal to service a, a target of, of sort of minute tactical relevance. It, it almost seemed like there were two different military staffs 
in action. I don't know. Justin, do, do you want do you want to take this? I'm curious what you think. So I mean, I mean, one thing I would flag is I, I would be interested. I don't have the data to know whether this is the case, but my instinct would be that the difference is partly in what service is launching or what branch the service is launching what. So for example, I could easily see it being the case that KH-55, 555, and 101 being launched off strategic bombers flying out of angles, which are being tasked at the general staff level. Then they might be being allocated targets out of Akatsia, either from general staff direct or from the, the military district. But that is a strategic asset. And I can see a much a scenario where there's a much tighter control over the kind of targeting and, and allocation process of missiles there. Um, same potentially, I don't know, but maybe for the Navy in, in the you know in terms of caliber, Vice, for example, firing land-based Iskander uh, cruise missiles, um, as well as ballistic missiles, long-range rocket artillery, where you're getting really still quite high-value long-range pieces, but being used in a very tactical role. Same for Tochkau. So in my, my instinct would be it depends where that where that force element actually fits in instinctively, if not doctrinally, into the kind of planning hierarchy, which might explain where where those taskings are happening. Same for interestingly, the 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 VKS repeatedly kind of fell back on when things were going badly on KH fifty nine employment, but against air defense targets, then against ground targets, then against CPs. And in that sense, in the Air Force, that would fit with the Tochka model of just just fire at the thing that the military district is worried about here because that's being done at a lower echelon in terms of allocation, even though technically KH-59 is supposed to be quite a re- you know, quite an expensive high-level asset. I don't know. Yeah, it's a pricey missile. But all right, in playing devil's advocate, in the initial campaign, the Russian aerospace assault did strike many fixed targets. They did... Qu- catch quite a few Ukrainian S-300s in the South. Um, I think the campaign was probably more successful there than it might have been in, in other areas. It, at least my impression is that they attempted an electronic attack operation. They did jam a number of Ukrainian radars early on in, in the campaign. And, and you're welcome to chime in if, if you don't. And they were, my sense is they were attempting to fragment Ukrainian command and control. Yeah, I mean, so I remember just before the war, sitting down with people from the Stavka and they were flagging that they would get three minutes warning uh, if Russian aircraft came against their air defense positions from the sea. And so they knew that was a vulnerability before the war. And it's not surprising really that uh, given the very short notice that the defenses had at that point, they were caught. There was also quite a lot of fixed air defense systems in the South that were that were caught. Um, in the North, it kind of depends how close you were to the border as to, as to how much warning you got, but there was much better radar coverage. And so uh, that helped. The other point being that uh, when it came to electronic attack specifically, um, the Russian electronic attack was pretty successful and also using uh, aerial targets and decoys to just generate spoofing masses of false targets. I saw um, testing drones being used in the first couple of days that yeah, Russians fired that I think were designed to stimulate Ukrainian air defense. Yeah, that's correct. So like E95M going over, uh, generating hundreds of false positives, right? was a really consistent tactic. And then using uh, direct electronic attack to scramble the radars. Where the Russians, I think, went wrong on that is that the Ukrainians have modified a lot of their radars and they have a very capable industry when it comes to building them. And so the behavior of the radar, while it was often affected, was also not necessarily consistent with the effect that the Russians had anticipated. Yeah, I want to emphasize this point. 
Russian military likely thought that they knew Ukrainian air defense incredibly well. It's the exact same Soviet-built air defense, but they likely didn't suspect that Ukrainians made modifications. Right. And even if they did suspect that, didn't necessarily know how those modifications worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is also, I mean, you know, since we're on the, the beginning, you know, it's worth flagging one thing the Russians actually did really well, uh, albeit not the way we would have done it, um, in the sense that their fighter coverage was really effective. Um, it wasn't tied into large complex strike packages. The strike packages were still overwhelmingly singles. Less than 25% were even pairs. No, no strike formations more than six in those in those early days. But at the same time, those roving fighter patrols really, really effective against Ukrainian fighters. Um, now, yeah, there's huge force overmatch there uh, in terms of at a technical level and at a numerical level. Um, but at the same time, this is a force that had very little time to plan. Uh, this is a force with air-to-air, almost no experience of any sort. And they were really effective. The Ukrainian kind of take coming out of those three days when the Air Force was really holding the line in terms of the aviation side of it was, we can't do this again. So w- let me ask two questions. I, those are great points, by the way. And I, I actually want to get a little bit into the, in the, into the tactical interaction. One, it felt like there, there ultimately wasn't really something that looked like a strategic aerospace uh, campaign. Or if it was, it was only the first couple of days. And the second part is, it felt like the Russian Air Force was divided into four air forces, each one of them supporting four military districts. Each military district with its own joint strategic command having deployed in the theater with multiple operational acts of advance. And so it felt a little bit like you had four Russian Air Forces fighting in support of four different districts after the first couple of days when, when, when things didn't quite go to plan. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, uh, ultimately, uh, except for uh, certain orbits like A50M, uh, where mm-hmm. by necessity, because of the numbers that they had up, those were working more widely. There's also an important element, which is that there was a centralized tasking for long-range precision strike through the GRU, um, which was generating targets to be serviced either by strategic uh, bombers or by the Navy or by ground-based fires. Um, and that process obviously wasn't subordinated to the military, military district command posts. Right. So then the question is, Quran's Dag, General Staff, Director at main director of operations and whatever cell they had put together to task assets. Yes. And and I think one of the comments, but at least one of the th- thoughts folks like me had was that it looked like the Russian military had the theory they hadn't had the organizational adaptations to employ this at scale, especially when they were both pressured and there was a strong pull demand signal. Unlike in Syria, where they sort of like tested Vaudir the capabilities, but they could use them at will and they could use, they could put the package together at leisure. Here, they had to actually go through the full cycle. One of the biggest differences that in countries like the United States, we had matured the organizations and the processes along with the technology over the series of several, several, a number of wars that, that, that lasted these decades. And something the United States can do at scale that the Russian military does not appear to be able to do, or at least is woefully inexperienced in doing. I mean, this is something I would really, really stress is we take it for granted in the West, in the military community, how indescribably impressive a US-led allied air tasking order is, even in a relatively minor campaign, you're talking thousands of sorties often a day 
intricate, incredibly detailed, and also interestingly having to be flexible as well because things go wrong and it must adjust on the fly quite literally. Tanker sorties, AWAC sorties, launch and recovery sequences, combat search and rescue, integrating all the different planning and briefing cycles, the maintenance, the logs that reach all the way back in many cases across continents, and the munitions, the planning with the ground staff and the sequencing with the campaign. That is something that we kind of take for granted because we've, as you say, honed it over decades. The Russian military has never done anything like it. And nor would any, by the way, European militaries would never be able to do this on our own. We we sort of temp- get tempted to sneer a bit, I think. Oh, look, the Russians messed up air power because they yeah. don't understand it. We own, we can only do it because we plug into the Americans. When, I say that quite a bit too, <laughs> as you know, uh, sort of like chauvinistic American. I, I do I do often make the point that European military power has a lot has a lot to commend it, but at, at scale, Europe does not have the ability to employ military power like that. Well, I, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about this war is that the Ukrainians entered this conflict, and I might be a couple of numbers off here, but you know, I'm orders one or two barrels off with 1,178 barrel artillery pieces and 1,680 MLRS and 60 divisions of air defenses. Uh, Ukrainian Air Defense Division being uh, an expanded battery with organic logistics and command and control. So it can function a bit like one of our air defense battalions, but it has fewer launchers. Um, But nonetheless, that is essentially more air defense, uh, you know, and artillery systems, and by the way, they went in with 900 main battle tanks too, than the vast majority of European NATO combined, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they had ammunition for it for six weeks, which like no one else other than maybe the Finns in Europe do. That's five five weeks longer than the typical European military. Right. Let's let me let me wrap up this conversation a bit and, and here I'm gonna get us a bit in trouble in two ways. I'll be perfectly honest. And and I will lead the part of the conversation gets in trouble. First, with the TB2 Bayraktar people, okay? And you know where I'm going, which is, in the first two weeks, it looked like because of the challenges of sorting air-to-ground air integration between the Russian ground forces and the Russian air force, and Russian air force is definitely afraid of PVOSV, the ground forces air defense, right? Because it can easily get shot down through friendly fire by its own uh, air defense, especially those that are not part of the aerospace forces. It looked like Russian uh, air defenses assigned to the ground forces were not engaging targets beyond the forward line of troops. And so early on, Ukrainian TB2s had successes, but then after that, it felt like they largely got shot down. And the- um, yeah, so TB2 was successful for the first three days uh, because the Russian orders were, if it flies, it's friendly, don't shoot. Um and then between day three and day 10, the Ukrainians observed fewer and fewer locations where they were able to use them and they would survive. By day 10, they were essentially denied uh, in most areas. They transitioned to being uh, a lure, uh, an ISR platform, mm-hmm. and in particular, maritime ISR. Like They've been useful. They've continued yeah. to be useful. Um, they have not been delivering significant effects. And actually, even in terms of when they were able to get in and strike targets, uh, they were dropping far fewer munitions than the Ukrainian Air Force's fixed wing aircraft. Yeah, I um, mean, if you if you look at the, the confirmed tally for TB2 footage, it's 100 and something vehicles, half of which are trucks. 
you know, that's a drop in the ocean for, it's not to say that it wasn't effective for the first couple of days, but I think there's such a distortion from the fact that Ukraine recognized very quickly as part of an overall extremely effective information operations strategy that this was some of the best footage they had. Not only was it compelling and therefore incredibly likely to go viral because of the quality of it, because you can see that there are right. defense systems, uh, and and therefore a really. But it's also humiliating for the Russians, right? Like the, you, you're seeing kit, including some air defense systems on active, clearly scanning, that are just not engaging these 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 cheap, relatively cheap, slow, slow yeah, flying UAVs. And it's not right. because they couldn't detect them. And, and and so so the Ukrainians stored up a lot of that footage. And kept drip feeding, releasing it with with having uh, got rid of the you know uh, sort of <laughs> the whatever the electronic equivalent is of of uh, tipexing over the uh, the date and time and location stamps on the footage, but to to give the impression that this was still a major thing a couple of months in, which not only served the purpose of of convincing the West that that aid to the, even you know aid from non-established major military powers was effective and something that Ukraine should get, but also that for for Russian air defense operators, you know, potentially the idea that no, no, you still need to keep your Doppler gate wide, you still need to deal with clutter, you still need to look at this stuff. Um, but equally, the flip side of all of that is having made that that success out of it in the information space, Ukraine has then had to actually use quite a lot of money and quite a lot of people at an opportunity cost because everything's an opportunity cost. Right. Doing TB2 stuff because people have kept donating them that frankly is less useful in some cases than other potential uses of that money and those people. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. But you know, for the people who who, who kind of took off it, and you know, apologies for sounding slightly um, like I'm I'm banging a nail into a dead coffin mm. here. But you know, people saying this shows how useless manned air power is. It's all about cheap, remotely piloted air systems. It's just not true. The moment the air defenses went back up. It just wasn't a viable close attack platform. But the other thing is that there were a number of successful strikes on the ground control stations for them. Yeah, I saw that. I, I even literally saw video footage of Russian Landsat strikes against Ukrainian TB2 ground control stations. But I, I wanted to put that issue a bit to rest because I think TB2s have a value. I won't make a comment regarding their cost effectiveness. I think they were effectively used in the ISR role. I think they were very effectively used in the information campaign. I mean, I think their value is primarily there. And I heard a number of Ukraine colleagues when I was there basically saying, they're good at this. They're phenomenally good at PR, you know, but let's not, let, let's not expand that conversation to their actual tactical utility against a country with integrated air defense, ground air defense, and, and an air force, because in that regard, they 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 were shot down pretty rapidly and and here comes kind of my second question and i think we can we can tie up our our air defense uh conversation which is so after the initial attack you have both air forces trying to make adaptations crane's air force seemed to be pretty successful first at luring and convincing the Russian military, that they had taken much higher losses than they actually did. They were able to recover and reconstitute to an extent. It's not clear to what effect they've, to what extent they've actually been effective at really making a difference on the, on the, the battlefield in terms of firing, you know, just like the Russian military, firing unguided rockets behind the forward line of troops and things of that nature. But the Russian Air Force, it wasn't neutralized. When there were pockets of air superiority or when there were pockets of, let's say, 
localized artillery advantage, such as in Luhansk, where the Russian military was using artillery and drones to try to take out Ukrainian air defense, they could operate. You saw them in Mariupol, you saw them in other parts of Luhansk, you saw them in parts of Donetsk. But on the whole, I hate to put you to this, how would you summarize the role of the Russian Air Force, let's say after April, if I was to make like a cut line, you know, and, and the adaptations on both sides? What, what are the things that you find interesting? So I would say in, in a couple of sentences, since April, the Russian Air Force has been largely held at bay in terms of its strike capabilities. It's punished lapses in basically comms discipline uh, because it can still hit fixed targets well um, from enough standoff with CAR 29T or L with Super 34, particularly where it has the ability to approach close to the front lines where that Ukrainian SAM coverage has been pushed back a bit. Um, and it's been increasingly effective, particularly since early September in the fighter role because the, the, the latest iteration of the strike campaign with, with the ballistic missiles and the Shahids has forced Ukraine to keep so much of its air defense around the cities and, and, and infrastructure. The, and, and frankly, the Orlan 10 complexes, particularly with Lancet 3 more recently, have been attriting Ukrainian air defenses near the front line quite well. Um, you know, the, the, the Russians have their, their, their fighter caps pretty close to the Ukrainian front lines. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, as a result... I heard him in Kherson. I mean, to be perfectly honest, or sorry to interrupt you, like no, over two weeks, two weeks ago, I heard, Rus I heard Russian aircraft well, I was there not far behind the forward line mm -hmm. of troops. And it was very clear because on the Ukrainian side, there wasn't that many, there weren't aircraft that were flying. Yeah. So, I mean, Ukraine basically got uh, a period where it was doing a lot more aggressive close air support, particularly down south, in the, the, the sort of couple of weeks to a month after they got AGM-88 harm because the Russians took a while to adapt their, their TTPs on the ground to the fact that there were significant numbers of launches of anti-radiation missiles up to that point, because they'd been largely invulnerable. They'd been banging away pretty much on active the whole time. And it took them way longer than it should have done um, to, to you know, adapt that. So the Ukrainians actually got a reasonable number of, number of hard kills with harm, which is, is quite surprising. I mean, you know, harm is not really supposed to be a hard kill weapon. It, it's meant to mainly suppress. If you get a hard kill, that's great, but that's not the point. Um, so the Ukrainians achieved, you know, they, they think up to about kind of 30% reduction in threat emitters relatively close to the front lines in a few weeks of harm ops. It's pretty impressive. And, you know, up to a 50 to 60% decrease in some places in effectiveness because of then the behavioral changes that followed on as well. And so they were kind of trying to pulse um, quite a lot more aggressive close air support, um, particularly in the South. And the Russians responded really well with the with the, the fighter caps, unfortunately, and have really punished the Ukrainian ground strike aircraft because hmm. that ability to operate high and fast reasonably close to the front lines with long-range missiles, particularly R-37 now with the MiG-31s and integrated onto the Su-35s, that it's just brutal for low-level uh, Ukrainian attack attack aircraft and fighters that can't even really try because they have to stay low because of the GBAD, mm -hmm. and so they're just completely outranged. So, you know, in that sense, Russian air power has not been effective in being a major shaping force on the battlefield, but it has kept the Ukrainians at bay and in terms of the air, and it's also a serious threatened being. Right, and to take up where you left off, there is a, a current dynamic where the VKS can't push in at medium altitude because of Ukrainian air defenses, uh, and they can't push in at low altitude because of a mixture of training issues, and secondly, uh, man pads. Um, 
if the Ukrainians run low on their tactical air defense systems in terms of stocks of munitions, then all of a sudden the VKS can sit at medium altitude. And a lot of the stuff that we've seen in Syria, where they are actually able to drop accurate strikes on targets, becomes viable. At that point, they have a lot of fighters still, and they have a lot of munitions, and that can really have a significant impact on the tactical situation. So making sure that the Ukrainians do not run out of medium yeah, yeah medium altitude capable SAMs well, so, is So medium critical. range specifically, because they, they actually got exactly. very high, but it's, it's basically SA-11 and things in that class. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can be pretty specific about it. It is SA-11 and a little bit of SA-8. The problem with SA-8 is it has to get so close to the front lines to have mm -hmm. any effectiveness that it's pretty vulnerable. And and the system can be defeated 3W and other sort of means. With so all on, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, so. can, I, can I interject? Because I have a basic question. I think one of the things that folks have gotten the most wrong about this war is the role of electronic warfare. And I think it's been very significant. I think is Russia has used it extensively. It's been one of the biggest challenges for Ukraine to deal with and the electronic attack and various types of ECM pods the Russian aircraft have employed. However, they also present a challenge for Russian aerospace operations as well. I suspect I've seen quite a bit of what to me looks like EW fratricide interference in terms of mission efficacy and all these, all these challenges. It's not quite as easy as it looks. And as, as they've attempted to employ these means, I think, I've, I think they've discovered a lot, of, a lot of operational problems on their own. But that's just my own take on it. There's a great conversation that was picked up between two Russian pilots talking in clear. Uh, so it's it's a two ship flying along, and both of them are complaining that their their radars are scrambled, not picking up anything. Like what's wrong? They start talking to the ground control station, and they realize it's their own EW pods that are automatically yep. targeting each other's radar. Um, and then the ground control station says, "We'll turn off your EW suite." Uh, so they go in without EW protection. So the level of fratricide in the Russian side is very high. Um, I think the, the conceptually most interesting thing about this is before the war, lots and lots of analysts talked about uh, denial of the EMS, right, for ground forces and others. The reality is the EMS is almost never denied. However, it is continually disrupted, right. and it is continually disrupted in unpredictable ways. And the force that is more effective is the one that can plan where it's achieving disruption, where it can exploit advantage and track that faster. Because if you try and execute an effect using the part of the spectrum that is being disrupted, you're going to miss, your process is going to be slowed down, etc. You won't be competitive. And so tracking what electronic effects are being uh, targeted against you is critical. Having that in terms of informing your command decisions about when you employ capability is critical. Um, and that's not just a challenge in terms of what the enemy is doing, but as the Russians are finding regularly, it's also about friendly force employment, right? If I am protecting myself from precision strike by denying navigational systems, great, but that also interrupts my ability to find targets with UAVs. So I have a trade-off there that's direct. Um, how do you deconflict those things, right? That's actually a complicated thing to do. And one challenge I think for Western forces is that uh, we don't have many exercise areas where we can actually turn all of our AW equipment on. So, so there is actually quite a big unknown here, which is, yes, the Russians have really struggled to deconflict, but uh, we, we can do it in niche contexts. We have not tested doing it at scale. Can I, can I add something? 
We also have a very different force structure in terms of employment of EW. The Russian military downloaded EW into companies, battalions, into brigade supporting military districts. There's a big difference. We often have phenomenal EW capabilities or various things that are at a particular brigade level, but very few people exercise with it. Very few commanders know what they can do for them. It is not a company or battalion that they work and live with. So they often do not regularly train with it. It is another brigade with this voodoo magic in the electromagnetic spectrum that they may have encountered or maybe not, and they're not fully sure how to, how to use it. They don't know what they can do with it, what it can do for them, and just very different in terms of force structure. And, and to me, often that's deterministic. When you download those capabilities and you spread them through your force, a lot of commanders have a better sense of what they can actually do with that capability. I mean, just to feed in on that, in terms of the, the one area where this is immediately relevant, um, in terms of the interaction between security classification, individual programs, and broader force design, is if you look at something like the F-35 at the moment, which has extraordinary electro electronic attack capabilities, particularly when you're looking at the Block 4 upgrade, mm -hmm. But is SAP clearance required for anything in the EW spectrum that it's doing? It, it's an interesting one where both many of your allies will be operating it. Every single branch of the US Armed Services, except the Army, will be operating it. And yet, because anyone who has access to the details of what it does needs to be SAP cleared, and that's expensive and difficult, there's a question about whether that pushing down of an incredibly capable EW platform to a very broad user base is actually going to enable more commanders and, and, and you know, more people throughout the joint force to appreciate what it can do for them. But of course, also one real benefit from the Ukraine war, you know, just looking at it from a pretty um, <laughs> uh, realist construct uh, kind of viewpoint is we've been sucking up the most unbelievable amount of ELINT from uh, so electronic intelligence and signals intelligence as well from Russian emitters doing stuff in Ukraine. For example, in the Black Sea, you know, there's a lot of international airspace out there and international waters. And the Russians have a lot of things nearby that are literally banging on in their full-on war mode. And so the West has got the most extraordinary opportunity for electronic collect. It's not just a case of learning from what the Russians did right and wrong on their own terms. It's also a question of how do we ensure that collectively and as an alliance, we are better than we have been in the past about breaking those security silos and pushing the lessons from what we've intercepted from the most extraordinary learning opportunity in that sense uh, across the alliance and across the services in each country. Thank you everybody for listening to part one of the Russia Contingency with Michael Kaufman. Part two should be coming out shortly. Thank you again. <laughs>